friends, this morning we are continuing in our Back to Basics sermon series, which we launched last week. And as you can imagine, since we're back in the basics, we're starting in the beginning, right? As we, as we should. In this Back to Basics series, we are revisiting the stories of our God. Some stories that we associate more with stories that we tell to children, Stories that we learn when we're little, we get the picture, and then we move on to maybe harder stories or more complicated stories. But in this space and in this series, we want to hold together that maybe these children's stories have more to offer than just the basics, or perhaps these stories have a fresh word to speak to us today. Um, last week, we were in Genesis 1 and 2, Bereshit, in the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are introduced to God, the artistic architect. I couldn't say architectural artist. <laughs> That's too hard a word for me. Um, to God, the artist. To God, the architect. To the one who comes with the blueprints to creation. To the God who builds space and organizes it well and thoughtfully, and then the artist who steps in and fills that space, who gets his hands dirty and invites us, humanity, to partner with him in that work. Um, I hope you enjoyed uh, the brief paradise of Genesis 1 and 2, because it's all over now. (laughs) Uh, We're in Genesis 3, and just that quick, just that quick, we reach the story of the fall. We call it the fall. We call it original sin, especially in our Reformed tradition. We're part of the Reformed Church in America, so that's the language that we use. And it's a story that we often talk about with children, but not always something that we remember with one another as adults. I want to share with you, uh, before we read it, Um, what one of our confessions in the Reformed Church, it's called the Belgic Confession, it's Pastor Stephen's favorite confession, Um, what it has to say about the doctrine of original sin uh, being this story. And I'm just curious to see how these words strike you. Here's what the Belgic says about original sin. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race, It is a corruption of the whole human nature and an inherited depravity, which even affects small infants in their mother's womb and the root, which produces in humanity, every sort of sin. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race. And it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism, seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. So here we go. (laughs) Genesis 3. Let's enter together into that contaminated spring. We're going to begin in... With the last verse of Genesis 2, Genesis 2.25, just so we can finish the creation account, then we'll move into Genesis 3, hear the first seven verses together, and then skip toward the end so we can make sure to grab pieces of the entire story. Friends, hear the word of the Lord, starting in Genesis 2.25. 
Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Jumping ahead to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, may your word be our rule your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, our utmost concern. Bless the hearing of the word today. As we pray in your name, amen. <clears throat> I'll bet if instead of reading that passage together, if I would have asked you what happens in the fall, what happens in Genesis 3? We could have pieced together, we could have remembered together what happens. We would have remembered probably a snake, because the snake is kind of the fun part. We would have remembered Adam and Eve, probably, and likely we would have remembered God as well. We would have remembered that Adam and Eve were in the garden when a snake approached them, tempted them, tested them, perhaps, and Eve fell for this temptation, giving some fruit to her husband, and therefore they both disobeyed God. Perhaps we would have remembered together, which we didn't read this part, that God calls out to Adam and Eve, though they are hiding. God curses the snake. God curses the ground. And God punishes Adam and Eve for their disobedience. Ultimately, after God closed them, they are banished from the garden. In Genesis 1 and 2, in that creation story, words create worlds. 
God speaks and the world is formed. It's like that. God speaks and life comes into existence. God, the artist, God, the architect speaks and there is life. Interestingly, in this passage from Genesis 3, we hear some different words that are spoken. And instead of words creating a world of thriving, instead of words that create a world of shalom, of intimacy and connection, we instead hear different words. We hear words of separation, words of doubt, and words of insecurity. And these words are also very powerful. And they create in the world too. We have a bit of a hint in Genesis 1-1 that something like this might be, coming, might be coming because there is a darkness that's rumbling around in the beginning. And here it is in Genesis 3. These are different words of isolation, of doubt, and of insecurity. Again, it's a really quick really quick conversation between the snake and Eve. And her husband's there, but not actively part of the conversation that we know of. The serpent says to Eve, the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? And if we listen carefully and closely, and if we were listening last week, we know the answer to that question We know that God did not forbid Adam and Eve from eating all of the fruit in the garden, from not eating of any trees. Instead, God says to Adam, no, you may not eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's next to the tree of life, but this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the tree you may not eat from. If you eat of it, you will die. So Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any trees in the garden? Well, says Eve, God did say that we could eat from the trees in the garden, but he said that we may not eat from a tree in the middle of the garden. And if we touch it, we will die. So Eve's not totally correct in her response here, but I think we can give her the benefit of the doubt because technically in Genesis 2.17, she doesn't exist yet. So she wasn't there to, to receive the news from God about what the, what the rules were around eating the forbidden fruit. But she knows something of it. She knows that there is a tree in the middle of the garden that she shouldn't eat from. And she's being extra cautious. Maybe I shouldn't even touch it as well, just to be safe. Interestingly, the snake does something here that I think is surprising. It's surprising because when we remember the story of the fall, we think of the snake as a liar. We think of the snake as a deceiver. But in this verse, the snake is about to tell the truth to Eve about what will happen if she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The snake says this to her, you will not die. And certainly when they eat of it, they don't die. 
They die eventually, but not immediately. You will not die, says the snake to Eve. If you eat of this tree, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens after she and Adam eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, according to God in verse 22? Exactly that. They receive the knowledge. So the snake tells Eve what is going to happen. The snake tells her the truth. That's not what we expect from the tempter, as he is later called in other parts of Scripture. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and their response is to experience shame. Did you catch that? They noticed before one another that they are naked. And for the first time, they notice their differences, and that makes them ashamed, and they hide from one another and from God. As we come back to the basics of these stories, I think part of our journey of discipleship is to take one courageous step closer toward what God might be speaking to us. So I'm going to do that with us right now. Take one courageous step closer toward the fall, toward this really important story in our understanding of God and in our understanding of how we relate to one another. And it's something that I notice when I look at the original Hebrew. So I'd love to share that with you, assuming that I might be one of the only people who did that (laughs) going into today. So I'd love to share that. When we read this story together in English, we don't catch a really interesting wordplay that happens in the original Hebrew, which is, it doesn't translate into English, so we miss it. The snake in this passage is called crafty. That's from the first verse. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Perhaps your version says um, shrewd or prudent, something like that. And we also learn that Adam and Eve are naked. That's the word that is used to describe them. So the snake is crafty. Adam and Eve are naked. Now, we know those words do not mean the same thing, right? Right. Okay, good. Those words do not mean the same thing. Crafty is very different from naked. If I said the word crafty, even if I had my mask on, there's no way you would mishear me, right? You wouldn't think I said naked if I said crafty. Those words sound very different in English, and they have very different meanings in English. It's true in Hebrew as well that they have very different meanings from one another. That word for naked means, you know, exactly what you think. And that word for crafty, it does mean crafty. It can also mean shrewd, like you might see in your translation. And when this word is used in other places, it can also mean sensible, which is a much more forgiving word than crafty. It's interesting when you place it in context. So we have the snake who is crafty, prudent, sensible, and Adam and Eve who are naked. And this is where the wordplay comes, comes in. That word crafty is arum, arum. And that word for naked is arum, arum, 
Aram, Arum, Aram. Do you hear how similar that sounds? Arum and Aram. I wonder, as we consider the character of the snake here and the character in Adam and Eve, and we, of course, find ourselves in those characters, right, in Adam and Eve, I wonder if this story is noticing a little bit of a similarity here between our characters and if that wordplay is trying to highlight that. So here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're the devil. (laughs) I'm not saying that you're wicked. I'm not saying that you're a tempter and a liar. That's between you and God. I'm not saying that about you. But I am saying this. The writer is noticing some type of similarity here, and I think the similarity is this. The snake goes into this conversation with questions. What did God really say about the tree and the fruit? What did God really say? Are you sure that's what God really said? The snake is crafty, sensible, shrewd. Adam and Eve, especially Eve, because we hear and see her dialogue, Eve, too, begins to ask some questions. And we hear some of that in the narration. We hear her wondering about the fruit of the tree looking good for food and pleasing to the eye. And it's desirable for gaining wisdom. We hear her asking questions about the fruit. I wonder if we are a little bit like the snake here, getting curious, asking questions. What did God really mean when God said that? Did I really hear God right? I don't know if that's for my good. How can that be for my good? I wonder if I should do this differently. I wonder if I should try a different path. I think that we still do a little of that today. That we sometimes ask those types of questions. Now, I'm pretty confident that none of us have had a conversation with a snake recently. But I am pretty confident that some of you have asked before. Did God really say that? Did I hear God right? Did I miss the message? Did I understand that? Is that really for my good, God? Are you really cultivating good for me like you do in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2? Or is there something, some good that I don't have access to that you are keeping from me? I wonder if we ask those types of questions in our own life. The snake says to Adam and Eve, or to Eve, again, Adam is right beside her, so hopefully he was paying attention. The snake says to Eve that if they eat the fruit, they will become like God. They will become like God. And here's where I think the hope for us is as we consider the fact that sometimes we ask questions too. The snake says that they will be like God, that they could become like God by eating the fruit. But the truth that the snake is forgetting is this. Adam and Eve are are like God. They are like God. 
They are not the same as God, but they are like God. They are made in God's image. We know this from Genesis 1. God uses the dirt to mold Adam, shapes Eve from his rib, breathes life into them. They are made in God's image. They are co-creators with God. They have a purpose. They are good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. And for just a moment, they forget that. They forget that they are made in God's image. Or perhaps they've just lost that prioritization as they consider the snake's questions. They are like God. They are not the same. They are not the creator of the universe, but they are like God. I see in this two characters, especially Eve, but Adam was there too, forgetting their belovedness, forgetting in a moment of questioning in a moment of doubt, in a moment of insecurity, that God indeed loves them, that they are called to a purpose. I notice what they don't do when they're not sure if they should eat the fruit. They don't turn to God. They don't come to God with their questions. Instead, they act on their own behalf. And I wonder if they would have remembered their belovedness in the face of this questioning, if they would have brought it to God. I wonder if this would have turned out differently. Of course it didn't. But it's still a really good story. Uh, Andrea Coyers actually sent me this devotional on Genesis 3. And it ends with the hope of this story. This is a hard story. It's a hard story to have in our canon because it's a recognition of our own brokenness. But it ends with God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden. Now, this isn't one of those banishings where I've heard some parents say like, oh, I'm ready to kick my kid out of the house, you know, push them out of the nest and, you know, hopefully they fly. Well, I guess it's a little bit like that. Um, But it's a little bit different because the hope is that one day they can come home again. Not that they'll go build their own life, but that they will eventually come home and be restored. Here's what the devotional from Andrea uh, says. It's from the first five. I think that's what it's called, the first five devotional. Genesis 3.23 tells us that God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. While we may think this sounds like an act of cruelty, it was actually an act of great mercy. Remember, there were two trees in the middle of the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not allowed to eat from. But then there was also the tree of life. If Adam and Eve had stayed in the garden, they surely would have eaten from this tree, from the tree of life. This would have resulted in them living for all eternity in a state of sin and decay. And worse yet, they would have been eternally separated from God. This is why God banishes them from the garden and allows them to experience death in their bodies. He wasn't going to let sin have the final say in their lives. No, he had a plan for eternal restoration. God sent Adam and Eve out so he could send mercy in. 
He did it for their salvation, a salvation that would find its realization in the one God who would send from heaven to reverse the curse of sin and death. What grace, not only for them, but for you and me. Friends, sin does not have a final say in the story. Sometimes we hear those whispering words, and they can create worlds if we're not paying attention. Those words of doubt, of insecurity, words of separation. And those words, if we start to listen to them, they can pull us away from the truth that we are like God, that we are made in God's image. And if we listen too much to those voices, sometimes we can forget God has a bigger plan of restoration for us all. That is such good news. That is such good news for us today. Friends, let's pray together.